Chapter Two of Freckles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Freckles by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Two, wherein Freckles proves his mettle and finds friends. Next morning found Freckles in clean, whole clothing, fed and rested. Then McLean outfitted him and gave him careful instruction in the use of his weapon. The boss showed him around the timberline, and engaged him a place to board with the family of his head teamster, Duncan, whom he had brought from Scotland with him, and who lived in a small clearing he was working out between the swamp and the corduroy. When the gang was started for the south camp, Freckles was left to guard a fortune in the Limberlost. That he was under guard himself those first weeks, he never knew. Each hour was torture to the boy. The restricted life of a great city orphanage was the other extreme of the world compared with the limber lost. He was afraid for his life every minute. The heat was intense. The heavy wading boots rubbed his feet until they bled. He was sore and stiff from his long tramp and outdoor exposure. The seven miles of trail was agony at every step. He practiced at night under the direction of Duncan, until he grew sure in the use of his revolver. He cut a stout hickory cudgel, with a knot on the end as big as his fist. This never left his hand. What he thought in those first days he himself could not recall clearly afterward. His heart stood still every time he saw the beautiful marsh grass begin a sinuous waving against the play of the wind, as McLean had told him it would. He bolted half a mile with the first boom of the bittern, and his hat lifted with every yelp of the shite-poke. Once he saw a lean, shadowy form following him, and fired his revolver. Then he was frightened worse than ever for fear it might have been Duncan's collie. The first afternoon that he found his wires down, and he was compelled to plunge knee-deep into the black swamp-muck to restring them, he became so ill from fear and nervousness that he scarcely could control his shaking hand to do the work. With every step he felt that he would miss secure footing and be swallowed into the clinging sea of blackness. In dumb agony he plunged forward, clinging to the post and trees until he had finished restringing and testing the wire. He had consumed much time. Night closed in. The limber lost stirred gently, then shook herself, growled, and awoke around him. There seemed to be a great owl hooting from every hollow tree and a little one screeching from every knot-hole. The bellowing of big bullfrogs was not sufficiently deafening to shut out the wailing of the whippoorwills that seemed to come from every bush. Nighthawks swept past him with their shivering cry, and bats struck his face. A prowling wildcat missed its catch and screamed with rage. A straying fox bayed incessantly for its mate. The hair on the back of Freckles' neck arose as bristles, and his knees wavered beneath him. He could not see whether the dreaded snakes were on the trail or in the pandemonium, hear the rattle for which McLean had cautioned him to listen. He stood motionless in an agony of fear. His breath whistled beneath his teeth. The perspiration ran down his face and body in little streams. Something big, black, and heavy came crashing through the swamp close to him, and with a yell of utter panic Freckles ran. How far he did not know. But at last he gained control over himself and retraced his steps. 
His jaws set stiffly, and the sweat dried on his body. When he reached the place from which he had started to run, he turned, and with measured steps made his way down the line. After a time he realized that he was only walking, so he faced that sea of horrors again. When he came toward the corduroy, the cudgel fell to test the wire at each step. Sounds that curdled his blood seemed to encompass him, and shapes of terror to draw closer and closer. Fear had so gained the mastery that he did not dare look behind him, and just when he felt that he would fall dead before he ever reached the clearing came Duncan's rolling call. Freckles! Freckles! A shuddering sob burst into the boy's dry throat. But he only told Duncan that finding the wire down had caused the delay. The next morning he started on time. Day after day, with his heart pounding, he ducked, dodged, ran when he could, and fought when he was brought to bay. If he ever had an idea of giving up, no one knew it, for he clung to his job without the shadow of wavering. All these things, in so far as he guessed them, Duncan, who had been set to watch the first weeks of Freckles' work, carried to the boss at the South Camp. But the innermost, exquisite torture of the thing the big Scotchman never guessed, and McLean, with his finer perceptions, came only a little closer. After a few weeks, when Freckles learned that he was still living, that he had a home, and the very first money he ever had possessed was safe in his pockets, he began to grow proud. He yet sidestepped, dodged, and hurried to avoid being late again, but he was gradually developing the fearlessness that men ever acquire of dangers to which they are hourly accustomed. His heart seemed to be leaping when his first rattler disputed the trail with him, but he mustered courage to attack it with his club. After its head had been crushed, he mastered an Irishman's inborn repugnance for snakes sufficiently to cut off its rattles to show Duncan. With this victory, his greatest fear of them was gone. Then he began to realize that with the abundance of food in the swamp, flesh-hunters would not come on the trail and attack him, and he had his revolver for defense if they did. He soon learned to laugh at the big floppy birds that made horrible noises. One day, watching behind a tree, he saw a crane solemnly performing a few measures of a belated nuptial song and dance with his mate. Realizing that it was intended in tenderness, no matter how it appeared, the lonely, starved heart of the boy sympathized with them. Before the first month passed, he was fairly easy about his job. By the next, he rather liked it. Nature can be trusted to work her own miracle in the heart of any man whose daily task keeps him alone among her sights, sounds, and silences. When day after day the only thing that relieved his utter loneliness was the companionship of the birds and beasts of the swamp, it was the most natural thing in the world that Freckles should turn to them for friendship. He began by instinctively protecting the weak and helpless. He was astonished at the quickness with which they became accustomed to him, and the disregard they showed for his movements, when they learned that he was not a hunter. While the club he carried was used more frequently for their benefit than his own, he scarcely could believe what he saw. From the effort to protect the birds and animals, it was only a short step to the possessive feeling, and with that sprang the impulse to caress and provide. Through fall, when brooding was finished and the upland birds sought the swamp in swarms to feast on its seeds and berries, 
Freckles was content with watching them and speculating about them. Outside of half a dozen of the very commonest, they were strangers to him. The likeness of their actions to humanity was an hourly surprise. When Black Frost began stripping the Limberlost, cutting the ferns, shearing the vines from the trees, mowing the succulent green things of the swale, and setting the leaves swirling down, he watched the departing troops of his friends with dismay. He began to realize that he would be left alone. He made special efforts toward friendliness with the hope that he could induce some of them to stay. It was then that he conceived the idea of carrying food to the birds, for he saw that they were leaving for lack of it, but he could not stop them. Day after day, flocks gathered and departed. By the time the first snow whitened his trail around the limber lost, there were left only the little black-and-white juncos, the sapsuckers, yellow hammers, a few patriarchs among the flamingo cardinals, the blue jays, the crows, and the quail. Then Freckles began his wizard work. He cleared a space of swale, and twice a day he spread a bird's banquet. By the middle of December the strong winds of winter had beaten most of the seed from the grass and bushes. The snow fell, covering the swamp and food was very scarce and difficult to find. The birds scarcely waited until Freckles' back was turned to attack his provisions. In a few weeks they flew toward the clearing to meet him. During the bitter weather of January they came halfway to the cabin every morning, and fluttered around him as doves all the way to the feeding-ground. Before February they were so accustomed to him, and so hunger-driven, that they would perch on his head and shoulders, and the saucy jays would try to pry into his pockets. Then Freckles added to the wheat and crumbs every scrap of refuse food he could find at the cabin. He carried to his pets the parings of apples, turnips, potatoes, stray cabbage leaves, and carrots, and tied to the bushes meat bones, having scraps of fat and gristle. One morning, coming to his feeding-ground unusually early, he found a gorgeous cardinal and a rabbit, side by side, sociably nibbling a cabbage-leaf, and that instantly gave to him the idea of cracking nuts, from the store he had gathered from Duncan's children, for the squirrels, in the effort to add them to his family. Soon he had them coming, red, gray, and black. Then he became filled with a vast impatience that he did not know their names or habits. So the winter passed. Every week McLean rode to the limber lost, never on the same day or at the same hour. Always he found Freckles at his work, faithful and brave, no matter how severe the weather. The boy's earnings constituted his first money, and when the boss explained to him that he could leave them safe at a bank and carry away a scrap of paper that represented the amount, he went straight on every payday and made his deposit keeping out barely what was necessary for his board and clothing. What he wanted to do with his money he did not know, but it gave him a sense of freedom and power to feel it was there. It was his, and he could have it when he chose. In imitation of McLean, he bought a small pocket account book, in which he carefully set down every dollar he earned, and every penny he spent. As his expenses were small, and the boss paid him generously, it was astonishing how his little hoard grew. That winter held the first hours of real happiness in Freckles' life. He was free. He was doing a man's work faithfully, through every rigor of rain, snow, and blizzard. He was gathering a wonderful strength of body, 
paying his way, and saving money. Every man of the gang and of that locality knew that he was under the protection of McLean, who was a power. This had the effect of smoothing Freckles' path in many directions. Mrs. Duncan showed him that individual kindness for which his hungry heart was longing. She had a hot drink ready for him when he came from a freezing day on the trail. She knit him a heavy mitten for his left hand, and devised a way to sew and pad the right sleeve that protected the maimed arm in bitter weather. She patched his clothing, frequently torn by the wire, and saved kitchen scraps for his birds, not because she either knew or cared anything about them, but because she herself was close enough to the swamp to be touched by its utter loneliness. When Duncan laughed at her for this, she retorted, "'My God, Manny, if Freckles had not the birds and the beast, he would be always alone. It was never meant for a human being to be so solitary. He'd get touched in the head if he had not them to think for and to talk to.' "'How much answer do you think he gets to his talking, lass?' laughed Duncan. "'He gets the answer that keeps the eye bright, the heart happy, and the feet walking faithful through the rough path he set them in,' answered Mrs. Duncan earnestly. Duncan walked away, appearing very thoughtful. The next morning he gave an ear from the corn he was shelling for his chickens to Freckles, and told him to carry it to his wild chickens in the limber lost. Freckles laughed delightedly. "'Me chickens,' he said. "'Why didn't I ever think of that before?' Of course they are. They are just little, brightly colored cocks and hens. But wild is no good. What would you say to me, wild chickens, being a good deal tamer than yours here in your yard? Hoot, lad! cried Duncan. Make yours light on your head and eat out of your hands and pockets, challenged Freckles. Go and tell your fairy tales to the wee people. They're just brash on believing things, said Duncan. "'You cannot invent any story too big to stop them from calling for a bigger.' "'I dare you to come see,' retorted Freckles. "'Take ye,' said Duncan. "'If you make just and bird light on your head or eat fry your hand, "'you are free to help yourself to my corn-crib and wheat-bin the rest of the winter.' Freckles sprang in air and howled in glee. "'Oh, Duncan, you're too easy,' he cried. "'When will you come?' "'I'll come next Sabbath,' said Duncan, "'and I'll believe the birds of the Limmerlost are tame as barnyard fowl when I see it, and no sooner.' After that Freckles always spoke of the birds as his chickens, and the Duncans followed his example. The very next Sabbath Duncan, with his wife and children, followed Freckles to the swamp. They saw a sight so wonderful it would keep them talking all the remainder of their lives, and make them unfailing friends of all the birds.' Freckles' chickens were awaiting him at the edge of the clearing. They cut the frosty air around his head into curves and circles of crimson, blue, and black. They chased each other from Freckles, and swept so closely themselves that they brushed him with their outspread wings. At their feeding ground, Freckles set down his old pail of scraps and swept the snow from a small, level space with a broom improvised of twigs. As soon as his back was turned, the birds clustered over the food— snatching scraps to carry to the nearest bushes. Several of the boldest, a big crow and a couple of jays, settled on the rim and feasted at leisure, while a cardinal, that hesitated to venture, fumed and scolded from a twig overhead. Then Freckles scattered his store. At once the ground resembled the spread mantle of Montezuma, 
except that his mass of gaily-colored feathers was on the banks of living birds. While they feasted, Duncan gripped his wife's arm and stared in astonishment. For from the bushes and dry grass, with gentle cheeping and queer throaty chatter, as if to encourage each other, came flocks of quail. Before any one saw it arrive, a big gray rabbit sat in the midst of the feast, contentedly gnawing a cabbage leaf. "'Well, I be drawed on,' came Mrs. Duncan's tense whisper. "'Shh, shh,' cautioned Duncan. Lastly Freckles removed his cap. He began filling it with handfuls of wheat from his pockets. In a swarm, the grain-eaters arose around him as a flock of tame pigeons. They perched on his arms and the cap, and in the stress of hunger, forgetting all caution, a brilliant cock-cardinal and an equally gaudy jay fought for a perching-place on his head. "'Well, I'm beat,' muttered Duncan, forgetting the silence imposed on his wife. "'I'll have to give in. Seein' is believin'. A man would a had to see that to believe it. We mauna let the boss miss that sight, for it's a chance will not likely come twice in a life. Everything is snowed under, and the creatures near starved, but trust in freckles that complete. They are tamer than our chickens. Look hard, bairns, he whispered. Ye winna see the like o' yon again, while God let ye live. Notice their colour against the ice and snow, and the pretty skipping ways of them, and spunky. "'Well, I'm hit fair.' Freckles emptied his cap, turned his pockets, and scattered his last grain. Then he waved his watching friends good-bye, and started down the timber-line. A week later, Duncan and Freckles arose from breakfast to face the bitterest morning of the winter. When Freckles, warmly capped and gloved, stepped into the corner of the kitchen for his scrap-pail, he found a big pan of steaming boiled wheat on the top of it. He willed to Mrs. Duncan with a shining face. "'Were you fixing this warm food for me chickens or yours?' he asked. "'It's for yours, Freckles,' she said. "'I was afeard this cold weather they would not lay good without a warm bite now and then.' Duncan laughed as he stepped to the other room for his pipe, but Freckles faced Mrs. Duncan with a trace of every pang of starved mother-hunger he ever had suffered written largely on his homely, splotched, narrowed features. "'Oh, how I wish you were my mother!' he cried. Mrs. Duncan attempted an echo of her husband's laugh. "'Lord, love the lad!' she exclaimed. "'Why, Freckles, are you not bright enough to learn without being taught by a woman that I am your mither? If a great man like yourself did not ken that, learn it now, and ne'er forget it. And so woman is the wife of any man. She becomes wife to all men for having had the wifely experience she kens. And a man-child has beaten his way to life under the heart of a woman, she is mither to all men, for the hearts of mithers are everywhere the same. Bless ye, laddie, I am your mither. She tucked the coarse scarf she had knit for him closer over his chest, and pulled his cap lower over his ears. But Freckles, whipping it off, and holding it under his arm, caught her rough, reddened hand, and pressed it to his lips in a long kiss. Then he hurried away to hide the happy, embarrassing tears that were coming straight from his swelling heart. Mrs. Duncan, sobbing unrestrainedly, swept into the adjoining room, and threw herself into Duncan's arms. "'Oh, the pure lad!' she wailed. "'Oh, the pure, mither-hungry lad! He breaks my heart!' 
Duncan's arms closed convulsively around his wife. With a big brown hand, he lovingly stroked her rough, sorrel hair. "'Sarah, you're a good woman,' he said. "'You're a mighty good woman. Ye hae a way of speaking out at times that's like the inspired prophets of the Lord. If that had been put to me now, I'd have felt all I kent how to, and been keen enough to say the right thing. But, dang it, I'd have stuttered and stammered and got nothing out that would have done anybody a mite o' good. But ye, Sarah, did ye see his face, woman? Ye sent him off looking like a white light of holiness had passed o'er and settled on him. Ye sent the lad away too happy for mortal words, Sarah, and ye made me that proud o' ye. I would not trade ye and my share o' the limber lost with any king ye could mention. He relaxed his clasp, and setting a heavy hand on each shoulder, he looked straight into her eyes. You're praying, Sarah. "'Just prime,' he said. Sarah Duncan stood alone in the middle of her two-roomed log cabin and lifted a bony, claw-like pair of hands, reddened by frequent immersion in hot water, cracked and chafed by exposure to cold, black-lined by constant battle with swamp loam, calloused with burns, and stared at them wonderingly. "'Pretty-looking things ye are,' she whispered. "'But ye had just been kissed.' and by such a man, fine as God ever made at his fair best. Duncan would not trade with a king, nah, nor I would not trade with a king with a palace, and velvet gowns, and diamonds big as hazelnuts, and a hundred visitors a day into the bargain. Ye've been that honoured, I'm blessed if I can bear to souse ye in dishwater. Still, that kiss will not come off. Nothing can take it from me, for it's mine till I die. Lord, if I am not proud— Kisses on these old claws. Well, I be drawed on. End of chapter 2